go house to house and to say, give me anything you got, yeah. a pot, a vessel, it's like a cup. Going to your it's, neighbor and saying, uh, you know, instead of saying, hey, can I borrow a cup of sugar? Just say, hey, can I borrow a cup? Well, you mean like yeah, a cup of what? No, I don't worry about it. I'll fill the cup up myself. Well, would you like a cup of sugar? No, dump it out. Just give me the cup. Just give me the yeah. cup. Just give me the cup. Hello, and welcome to another fresh, never frozen episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague, Ken Hensley, and we thank those of you who have been following along with this series that we've been doing called, uh, well, it's On the Journey is the name of the overall show, but we've been doing a series on the Eucharist. Ken, are you excited about digging into more of this? Yes, I am. All right. Well, good. Well, before we do that, I want to remind people to check us out at chnetwork.org to watch other episodes. This is part three of this particular series. You can go find parts one and two. You can also head over to this, the Coming Hope Network community and uh, maybe get involved in some of the conversations that we have with our Coming Home Network members about these things. It's free to join. So go over to Coming Home Network's website, chnetwork.org, and click uh, connect. Ken, let's get started. Uh, where do we leave off and where are we picking up? Uh, in regard to the Eucharist this week? I don't know. No, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm just joking. Wrong answer. <laughs> I'm joking. We're doing a short series that am amounts to our a discussion of how we came to the Catholic view of the Eucharist. That's where we're at. And, and I want to begin by just making this statement. M my conversion to Catholicism, um, I know it's different for others. It's, it, it, it's different for everyone, but it, for me, it, it was not a matter of someone coming along and dropping this massive mathematical proof into my lap, you know, and suddenly I just knew this is true. Although I would encourage people to go back and watch the series you and I did on Sola Scriptura, which begins at episode three of On the Journey, and also the series we did on Sola Fide, which begins at episode 17, because over time, um, my, my view is that Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide both fell apart. Okay, but still, it wasn't some mathematical proof. Uh, for me, it was rather an accumulation of evidences taking place over several years and across a broad range of issues, moral, theological, biblical, historical, and whatnot. Well, over the last two weeks now, I've begun sharing something of the process by which I became open. I think that's the best word at this point. The process by which I became open even open to thinking about the Eucharist as being more than a simple symbolic meal of remembrance and proclamation of the death of Christ. It began for me, a couple of steps. It began for me when I read the early church fathers, and I found myself faced with, I would say, the reality that the church from the earliest times seemed to view the Eucharist as a miraculous meal of sorts, a miracle meal, in which bread and wine are changed, in which bread and wine become the resurrected body and blood of Christ. A few of these witnesses, as you pointed out when we were there, were either direct disciples of the apostles themselves, of St. Ignatius of Antioch, or they were disciples of those who had been disciples of the apostles themselves. 
And yet all of them described, and I'm talking about the first two, three, four, five centuries and on, all of them described the Eucharist in terms that made it clear to me that they did not hold, they simply did not hold the view that I held on the subject. St. Ignatius referred to the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality, quote unquote. Let me ask you, would you have ever, as a Methodist, would you have ever thought to describe if you were celebrating the Lord's Supper, would you have ever thought to stand at the table and look out at the people and say, this is the medicine of immortality? Absolutely not. And actually, for reasons that aren't really important to this conversation, I recently went back and checked the website of a church that I used to go to mm-hmm. to see what they actually taught officially about the Lord's Supper. They used the word sacrament on the website, which I don't think I ever heard mm-hmm. from the pulpit. Um but they use it on the website, probably copied and pasted from something. But they said this is this in no way means that we believe that the elements themselves have some sort of inherent sacredness yeah, or change right? or anything like there, that. There yeah. wasn't any kind of there was not it was not medicinal. Okay, well, the, Saint, the oyster crackers and the Welches. So Saint Ignatius says this is the medicine of immortality. He also described the Eucharist as I'm quoting the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. St. Justin Martyr spoke of, and I quote again, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, and by the change of which, these elements, our blood and flesh is nourished, unquote. He also said that this food, which is made into the Eucharist by the prayer and is changed, he also said that this food is, quote, both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. Again, if I had stood at my communion table in my Baptist church for a trillion years celebrating you know, on a, on a monthly basis the Lord's Supper, I would never, ever, ever have spoken like St. Ignatius did, like St. Justin Martyr did, and then all the rest. It, it was becoming clear to me, in other words, as I read the Fathers, and it was clear to serious church historians as well, like J.N.D. Kelly, the famous Anglican scholar in his book, Early Christian Doctrines, or Yaroslav Pelikan, the Lutheran scholar, the best of early church historians, it was clear to them too that this had been the doctrine of the early Christians. In fact, that this continued to be the doctrine of Christianity in the second century, the fourth, the sixth, the ninth, east and west, essentially all the way up until the time of the Reformation in the 16th century with a, with a couple of, of variations along the way. Yeah, I had that same discovery uh, as I really got into it and tried mm-hmm. to figure out what to make of this whole communion question. And at the end of it, or I should say at the beginning of this journey, after kind of having done a more exhaustive survey, I thought, well, I don't know what I believed about communion, but it's pretty clear what every Christian believed about communion for the first 1500 years of the church. I don't know that I believe yeah. what they believe. Yeah. But I do know what they believe. I, about it. I totally follow that feeling. When it starts to become clear, this is what the Christian church held. What am I going to do about beginning. that? What do <laughs> right? I think yeah. about that? Okay, well, discovering this then was step one for me. Step two was returning to the New Testament, re examining, to begin with, what the Apostle Paul had to say about what I referred to as the Lord's Supper. And finding out, discovering that the things that Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, were entirely consistent with what the early church seems to have believed. Now, given my commitment at the time to the, to the foundational issue of sola scriptura, that we should look to the Bible alone to derive our Christian doctrine, if I had discovered that 
that the teaching of St. Paul on the Eucharist, if I had discovered that it somehow clearly contradicted, okay, just clearly contradicted the teaching of the early church and on up to the time of the Reformation, well, I guess I don't know now, I, but I suppose I would have been willing to ignore all of it then and to say, I'm standing on what Paul says, and I, I don't care whether the entire church was wrong for 1,500 years straight. But this didn't happen. Instead, I found Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, stating that in the Eucharist, we share, we participate, we fellowship in the body and blood of Christ. Could have been speaking figuratively, but maybe not. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6, that you and I spent a little time on, I found Paul drawing a straight line, really, between the Eucharist on the one hand, and the supernatural food and drink that God provided his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, on the other hand. It's in his warning, in his warning to the believers in Corinth about failing to persevere in faith and the obedience of faith, Paul says to them, my paraphrase, remember, even though God's people in the Old Testament, even though they were baptized into Moses, even though God gave them supernatural food and drink from heaven for their journey, for sustenance, for their journey on the road, you know, the manna, the water leaping up from the rock. Many of them didn't make it because they didn't persevere in the obedience of faith. And Paul's implied message to his readers in Corinth seems clearly to be something like this. You folks may have been baptized into Jesus Christ. You may have that going for you. And you may have your own supernatural food and drink to nourish you on the road to your, your eternal inheritance, which which he could only mean by that, the Lord, what I refer to as the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. You may also have your supernatural food and drink, but none of this guarantees that you're going to make it to the end. In other words, this is what struck me. When Paul thought about the Eucharist, he didn't simply think about remembering and proclaiming, you know, do this in memory of me. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He didn't simply think about that. Instead, Paul's mind went to the manna falling from heaven to the people of Israel. It went to water leaping up from a rock to quench their thirst. Paul thought about supernatural food and drink. So the early church fathers, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul thought of the Eucharist as more than remembering and proclaiming. He seems to have thought of the Eucharist as some kind of a miraculous meal, supernatural. Now, this way of thinking about the Lord's Supper, I want to stress, was brand new to me, brand new. But it shouldn't have been when I think about it, because after all, when you think about your knowledge of the Bible, your broad knowledge of the Bible, weren't miraculous meals a recurring theme in Scripture? Although I should have noticed that pattern, I don't think I really saw that pattern. And the more I began to think about it, or the more I said to myself, is there a pattern here? Let me, let me look at, you know, through Scripture. The more I thought about it, the more it struck me that throughout the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testaments, we find a pattern of stories in which God's people are fed through supernatural means. And I want to walk through these with you. There are a couple that we just know right off the top of our head. There's the manna from heaven in Exodus 16, which we're going to come back to in a lot of detail next week. There's the water um, from the rock in Exodus 17. 
There's that time when the Lord sent ravens to feed Elijah as he's hiding in the wilderness. That's 1 Kings chapter 17. So there are a few of these scattered there, but then there are not one, not two, not even three, but a number of stories throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, that describe situations in which a small amount of food is miraculously multiplied to feed a number of God's people. For instance, let's walk through them and remind ourselves and our, and our viewers. 1 Kings chapter 17, the prophet Elijah visits the home of a poor widow and her son. He says to her, make me something to eat. I'm quoting now. She responds, as the Lord lives, all I have is a little meal in my jar and a little oil in my vessel. I'm gathering some sticks right now to make something for me and my son before we die. So in response to that, Elijah instructs her to first make a cake for him, bring it to him so that he can eat, and then after that, feed herself and her son. And I, I remember thinking when I read this, what a jerk. I mean, imagine you got COVID and imagine you wind up in the hospital and you wind up in ICU and they've got you on a respirator. And I walk in and I say, hey, give me that tube so that, so that I can breathe. And, and you, well, you can't talk when you're on a respirator, but you, you try to just mouth out, look, I will die if I take this respirator out. And I say, you know, don't worry about it. Let me breathe for a while first and then I'll give it I'm back sure to you. I'm sure some miracle will happen breathe. that will keep us both breathing. Yeah. And, you know, th so when you read that, you think, what a monster. But except that he adds these instructions, and I'm quoting now, when he says, first make me a cake, bring it to me, then you can feed yourself and your son. He says, quote, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal shall not be spent and the vessel of oil shall not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. He's asking her to trust God's word spoken through him. And what's the very next thing that we read? Quoting again, and she went and did as Elijah said, wow, what faith. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not spent, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Our first miraculous meal, if you will, where a small amount of food is just multiplied to feed, well, a much larger number of people. And I did hear, and I, 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 it was never in the context of the Lord's Supper, but I did hear connections between that and some of the, well, the multiplication uh, narratives that you're going to get mm -hmm. into later on. I mean, I did hear that kind of thing preached on. I did hear these things connected, but just not connected in the way that you're going to connect them by the time this episode is, is done with. Um, it, it is clear that God is, he's no stranger to making a lot of things out of a little, especially when it comes to food. And presenting us with these typological patterns through Scripture that teach us, um, we, we move forward from First Kings to to Second Kings chapter four, and we find a similar account. This time it's it's Elisha the prophet, and he's meeting with a woman who is in desperate straits. She explains to Elisha that her husband has died, that she is in tremendous debt, and that her two children are about to be sold to pay the debt. She informs Elisha that she that all she has to her name is, and I'm quoting again, one little jar of oil. Unquote. Elisha immediately tells her, he says, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not a few. He says, go out to your neighbor, 
go house to house and just say, give me anything you've got, yeah. a pot, a vessel, like a cup. going to your neighbor and saying, uh, you know, instead of saying, hey, can I borrow a cup of sugar? Just say, hey, can I borrow a cup? What do you mean? Like <laughs> yeah, a cup of what? No, I don't worry about it. I'll fill the cup up myself. Well, would you like a cup of sugar? No, dump it out. Just give me the cup. Just give me the yeah. cup. Just give me the cup. Okay. And, and so she does this. She goes out. Um, she gathers everything she can. And what do we read? So she went from him and shut the door upon herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another one. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. It's an amazing story. It is. So, you know, just, again, a wonderful story where a little bit is taken and is miraculously multiplied. Okay, later on in that same chapter, we have another one. So we're still in 2 Kings chapter 4. Another miraculous multiplication. In this case, Elisha is sitting with 100 of his disciples, and they are, you know, as we like to say, they're starving to death. They're hungry. One of his servants has some loaves of barley and a few ears of grain, and this is what we read. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How am I to set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, that is, Elisha repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. All right, Ken, now I'm curious. How would you have preached on these passages as a Baptist pastor? Well, Because I, mean, I know how I heard them preached on in my, my tradition. It was essentially, and you know, with the passages that mm-hmm. we're about to get to, it's, it was the same message, which is why I heard them connected on various occasions. It is that, listen— you and I are finite beings. God is infinite. He can do anything he wants. All he wants is your willingness to give the little that you have to him, mm-hmm. and he will take that and turn it into something amazing. And we're going there by the end of this episode in terms of what the Lord's Supper that is. Sounds, but that's yeah, that's that, as far as we That sounds it. right. That sounds right. It would have been an illustration of how if you're just willing, like the woman who gave her two you know, might the two in the coins temple. of the temple. Yeah. Yeah. If you're willing to give what you have, that God will take it and do something wonderful with it in, in your life. But I wouldn't have tied it together in a sequence, which we're moving forward on. So I don't want to say anything. Right, more, I, yeah. But, we're not going to hey, get into this, but, the, but this, okay, is, this is going to come up again later. So because here's game. the deal this, this pattern of miracle meals, of God multiplying food to feed a greater number, this continues right on through from the Old Testament into the New Testament. In fact, to tie just a couple quickly, I think it's hard to read the account of the woman who borrowed all the vessels from her neighbors and then filled them to overflowing. It's hard to read that account without thinking immediately of the miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, at Cana, when Jesus, at his mother's request, commands the servants to bring six stone water jars, each containing 20 or 30 gallons, and he says, fill the jars to the top with the water. It sounds just like that story, you know, go and collect all these vessels and, uh, you know, and they're going to be filled up. So they fill the jars with water and then Jesus proceeds to transform the water into wine. I had never noticed this connection before, my, my confession. And yet the story of the woman in the vessels and the story of Jesus at Cana 
are just parallel. You can see it's, it's the same kind of thing going on. And then, I think most powerful of all, it's hard to read the account of, Eli of Elisha's multiplication of the barley loaves and the ears of grain to feed a hungry, I mean, a hundred hungry disciples. How can you read that without thinking about the time when Jesus took a few loaves and a few fish and he multiplied them to feed 5,000 men besides women and children who had come to hear him speak and had become hungry? In fact, let's go into this a little more detail. The parallels between these stories, this particular Old Testament story, and the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes are, are to me, fascinating. Elisha has compassion, first of all, on his famished disciples, and he says to his disciple, give to the men that they may eat, 2 Kings 4.42, which reminds me of Matthew 15.32, where we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And he instructs his disciples to feed them. More, more parallels. Elisha's servant objects when Elisha first says, feed them, when the prophet tells him to feed the men. He says, how am I to set this before a hundred men? 2 Kings 4, 43. Well, how do the disciples respond to Jesus when he suggests that they feed the multitudes? Quoting, where are we to get bread enough in the desert to feed so great a crowd? Matthew 15, 33. It's an exact parallel. In the end, moving along, Elisha takes whatever small amount that his men have, these few barley loaves and ears of grain, and he miraculously multiplies them to meet the need. Jesus does exactly the same. Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. And then we read, and commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And you're getting ready to go there, but I just want to say, how do you know where I'm going? Phrase I make lots. I know of exactly where you're now. going, but <laughs> but uh, there's a phrase that you said in that miraculous multiplication of the loaves and fishes that leaps off the page at me now that I never heard until I finally read a Catholic explaining mm -hmm. how they read how they read the multiplication. And you're about to get into it uh here in just a little bit when we talk about what happens at the Last Supper. Uh but so you got this look on your face like, God, we're about to get into it. Shall I? I know. I'm trying to not, <laughs> not spoil it too much, but it's it's so funny. Like the things that we see so clearly now and that were so clear to the church fathers, because this was how they were yeah. always sort of trained and formed to interpret these passages of scripture. And you and I think we're like so smart because we like discovered it in like the 21st century, when in fact, like the church is like 2000 years ahead of us on this stuff. Like the, it's hilarious how many times uh, during my discovery period in regard to yeah. the Eucharist, I would. Okay, well, when, like some, like, when we get there in about like, three ah. minutes, when we get there in like three minutes, then okay. you can express this again. I will. I'm going to sit on it. You know, in, in more detail. Okay. Okay. I'm convinced of this, of this much. In the miracles of changing water into wine, in the miracle of, of multiplying the loaves and the fishes, I'm convinced that Jesus was consciously reenacting these miraculous stories from the Old Testament of Moses, of Elijah, of Elisha, the, great, the greatest, really, prophets in the Old Testament. 
I'm convinced that Jesus was saying when he when he performed these miracles, and he performs them in a context of of a Jewish community that was raised on the Old Testament and would know these stories very, very, very well. Jesus was saying essentially, one greater than Moses is here. One greater than Elijah. One greater than Elisha is here. Another prophet has come, and one greater than them. Okay, so. I'm pretty sure of that. He's looking back and he's seeing the culmination in his own ministry and he's making that proclamation. But what about looking forward? That was the, that was the question. Is Jesus also looking forward when he multiplies the loaves and the fishes, when he changes water into wine? Is he looking forward? In other words, was the feeding of the multitudes the end of this scriptural pattern of miraculous meals? Or was there more to come? Well, and that's when we get into what the about? phrase that jumps out at me now every time I read it, but that I completely yeah. was oblivious to. What about uh, the Last what, Supper? What about oh the Last goodness. Supper? All right, was, lay it on me. Was the Last Supper another miraculous meal? The question begs, you know, to be to be heard, to be answered. Are there indications which where you're going, I know. Are there indications in the narrative of the Last Supper that might hint at this? Well, I believe there are, and I'll begin to describe it, but you, your excitement's overflowing, so if you ever want to break in, just break in, okay? Um, we can we can handle it. I'll, I'll try and contain myself. I'll try and recline, uh, okay. you know, and, and let you do okay. this. I just asked the question, are there indications in the narratives of the Last Supper that this might be the case, that we might have on our hands another miraculous meal? And I think there are. In the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, whether in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the actions of Jesus are described in a very specific manner. At the Last Supper, as the disciples are reclining, first of all, at the table, Jesus takes bread, that's the first verb, he blesses it, second verb, he breaks it, third verb, and he gives it to his disciples. And this is the case, Matthew 26, 26, Mark 14, 22, Luke 22, 19. Again, while the disciples are reclining, the Lord takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. Now, this is a passage that I had read many, many times as I led in the celebration of the Lord's Supper in, in the church that I pastored. Now, as they were eating, I'm reading now, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, which he had given thanks, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well, as it turns out, in every single account of Jesus' feeding of the multitudes, whether looking at the account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And this account occurs in all four Gospels. In every single account, Jesus' actions are described in exactly the same way. In fact, using exactly the same words, the same verbs. Here's Matthew's account. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. There's your reclining disciples, right? And then taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate. 
and we're satisfied. You don't want to jump in and start like a uh, preaching. You're like, I'm just letting this. I'm just letting uh, this kind of land on the listeners what? because this is this is this what's is heavy about it. Is that this, how was this invisible to us for so long, Ken? I don't understand how this was invisible to us, especially when you think about the context. Here's an event that's recorded in all four gospels. There aren't very many of those. The multiplication of the loaves and the fish to feed the five thousand to feed the four thousand. This is an event that is recorded in all the gospels. It's the primary miracle meal recorded in the Gospels. And it appears, for some reason, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all consciously patterned their description of the Lord's actions at the Last Supper after his actions in feeding the multitude. I mean, well, the Last them, Supper— St. Paul, when he says that I passed on to you what was handed on to me <laughs> about the Last Supper, right? Uh, he uses the same kind of progression of, of, uh, of action. You know, he takes and gives thanks and then gives it to his disciples. In other words, the Last Supper being read in the context of the Gospels or in the context of the multiplication, the Last Supper reads like another miracle meal, like a, a, a multiplication meal, just like the others. Okay. Now, at this point, I'm thinking about something you said early on where you said that even once you saw in the early fathers what was taught, you didn't know what you would think, okay? You weren't sure where you would go with it. Well, I'd say the same thing. At this point in my own study, there were more questions than there were answers, but the questions were so provocative. Question one, why did the apostles connect the Last Supper to the feeding of the multitudes? Why did the apostles pattern Jesus's actions at the Last Supper after his actions in the feeding of the multitude? I mean, that's an interesting question. Why? Why did they describe it not just uh, as being similar, but why they describe it using exactly the same verbs? He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. He distributed. Why did they do that? What was in the uh, what was in the minds of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they would describe the Last Supper using the exact terminology from the feeding of the multitude? And then this question. The feeding of the multitudes fits into a pattern of miraculous meals that we can see throughout the Old Testament. Did the apostles conceive of the Last Supper then, in similar terms, as a miraculous meal? As a meal in which some kind of a miracle was taking place? I mean, the connection is so strong, the question just leaps off the page, really. And then, if the Last Supper was conceived as a miraculous meal, then what does that say about the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist? Because if the Eucharist is the reenactment of the Last Supper, and if the Last Supper is some kind of a miraculous meal, is is the Eucharist some kind of miraculous meal? I mean, it, yeah. And again, go as ahead. I, as I as I'm discovering these things, and again, I have not put it all in the context of the Catholic celebration of the Eucharist, or even mm-hmm. the Orthodox mm-hmm. celebration of of Holy Communion, or, or anything like that. The questions I'm asking as I'm making these connections are. Wait, what do we just do with the baguette from our house church? Like you're very practical. Did, did I just accidentally? Did I just accidentally consecrate, or did my friend like just accidentally consecrate like French bread into the actual body and blood of Christ? And here we are, like throwing it in a glad bag. Like this is the kind of like stuff that I was like starting to freak out about because I didn't understand like how does this even work? Right? What are the practical? Oh, and you're like, how does this work? You're reminding me of my family was on a vacation when my daughter was 
very young. She's probably about eight. And we were in New Orleans and we went to a church and they were celebrating communion. And so, you know, the, the officiant, the pastor stood at the table and he spoke the words and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And then they began to pass that tray around filled with all the little cups. You know, you mentioned that a few weeks ago, all these little plastic cups filled with grape juice. And my daughter dumped it. My daughter like this, you know, you know, juggled it and dumped it on the floor. And so back to what you're saying, you know, are we dumping the blood of Christ all over the floor? Like, you know, was, that, was, that was the question. Yeah, what, what happened? Like, you know? Uh, yeah. And, 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 and furthermore, Ken, when you presented um, oyster crackers and Welch's or whatever it is that you presented, did you use the words that I always heard used when someone handed, handed it to you, the body of Christ? Um, I mean, that's the terms that we used in, in, in my that's true. communion services. Remember, we would say the body time. of Christ. It, it was just words. Spent a lot of time. It was just crackers. And I make but, a lot of mistakes. I don't, I don't remember what we said exactly. Whether, right. I don't remember if we said anything to each other or whether people just passed it along. I don't. Yeah. But look at this pattern. You know, all the way back to the manna, which we're going to get into next week again. But this pattern of meals, of miraculous meals going through the Old Testament, going into the New Testament, having its greatest you know, ex- exemplar in the feeding of the multitudes. And then you come to the Last Supper, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe it using exactly the same verbs and terms that they use to describe the feeding of the multitude. And so these questions were coming to me. Was the Last Supper a, a miraculous meal of some sort? Now, it was clear that the early church fathers viewed the Eucharist as a miraculous meal. This was the teaching of Christianity until the time of the Reformation, really, when some, only some of the Protestant reformers began to teach otherwise. Zwingli, notably, the Anabaptists, Calvin, and some others. So this was clearly the teaching of the church. And so what about it, is what I was asking. Is is it possible that something is happening in the Eucharist that is like what happened when Jesus took the loaves and the fish and fed the multitude? Is the Eucharist yeah, the medicine the, of immortality? <laughs> getting, getting back to Ignatius. It's an important question. Is it, and, it, and I'm glad that you used that phrase, medicine of immortality, because there's one sort of miraculous food that we didn't talk about here hmm. uh, that is actually, you asked me before the show uh, if this was an Old Testament or a New Testament thing, and it's both. And it uh, starts in Genesis chapter 2 and verse, well, and chapter 3 as well, and uh, shows back up again in Revelation 22, the tree of life, which you eat from and live forever. Mm. And I'm starting Mm. to discover as I'm finding this out that the church fathers talk about the cross as the tree of life and Jesus is the new fruit on the tree of life from whom, from whose flesh you eat and live forever. I mean, I don't know how I... Yeah, put it all together because, but I, but I can tell you this: <laughs> I was not doing this alongside a study of the Catechism. I was not reading like Brant Petrie while I was doing this. I was trying to piece this all together on my own, and was, to be honest, freaking out a little bit at what I was. Yeah, you got me thinking and, about uh, Revelation chapter twenty-one and the the depiction of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Yeah, and there are these fruit trees. Yeah, the tree of life. Yeah, the, yeah right? you know wh- whose leaves heal the nations, all that stuff. Yeah. God seems to like physical stuff. And God doesn't seem to mind using physical stuff to convey his life, his life, 
is that a commentary on the fact that the word became flesh and dwells among us? Yeah, and I'm I mean, I, 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 this is really what it all comes down to. And I'm to, thinking right? about the series you and I did on baptism where, you know, we're naming the Syrian has got leprosy and he goes down and dips in the Jordan to get clean. Or when the blind man said, you know, when Jesus says to the man born blind, go wash in the pool of Siloam, you know, there's faith. He has to trust the word of Jesus. And then there's action. He has to go. And it's purely, it's all physical. He has to go into this water and wash and come up seeing. And everything we're looking at, you know, here today is just sort of piling upon that, you know, uh, piling more images up along the same lines. And we're only on part three of this series. So, yeah. And so I'm asking, I mean, at this point, I'm still, I'm, I mean, I'm a Baptist minister and I'm reading all this stuff. And at this point, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm just thinking, is, is the Eucharist the medicine of immortality? Is it a miracle meal? I mean, is, is all this tied together? What Were the early church fathers right? <laughs> and was the church right in those 15 centuries that I'd always thought were just sort of like some dark, uh, you know, like a closet you just shut, you know, in darkness, you know, wait, waiting for the bright light of the reformers, Luther and Calvin and Bucer and Melanchthon and all them to show up and straighten things out. Well, were the early church fathers right? Was the church right on this issue? And um, yeah. that's where we have to leave or it today. Under, the question, we have to leave under it. even that question for me was, wait, what is the church? <laughs> I mean, these are the kinds of questions that this is this causes you to ask. It's, it's, it's a question that's connected to every other yeah. kinds of questions that you might have about what it even means to follow Jesus. And so I'm excited that we've yeah, got well, we, more we to go We've got to cut it series. off because we have promised that we would not make super long shows, so we'll pick up next week. Sounds good. And in the meantime, if we've spurred any realizations or recognitions or memories or questions for you, please do connect with us through chnetwork.org. Head on over to the Coming Home Network online community. Um, you can click on the Connect tab, and it'll take you straight there. Ken and I hang out there all the time and interact with people. So please do check it out, and we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swain, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Ken, we'll see okay, you next Matt, week. Okay, Matt, good to see you again.